Hello and welcome to The Bunker, the mostly guaranteed Brexit-free politics podcast from the makers of Romaniacs. I'm Andrew Harrison and on this week's show, yes in my backyard, you've heard of NIMBY, but is YIMBY the answer to Britain's housing crisis? Should we forget our fear of development and build, build, build? The US primaries, are Democrats about to make the same mistake that the British Labour Party made and nominate a kindly old man that nobody will vote for? And what the hell is TikTok? <laughs> Why are all the kids you know hogging the bandwidth to make super short music videos? And is the company behind it really worth more than Uber? All that and more coming up on The Bunker. Hello, welcome back. The bunker continues to sweep all before it, but we've got a bit of bad news, actually. No Ian Dunt this week. So, yes, you can play it in the car without the kids learning some unfortunate new words. <laughs> Remember. <laughs> Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at bunker underscore pod and on Facebook, facebook.com slash thebunkerpodcast. Let us know what you think of the show so far, what we should be talking about. Let's say hello to this week's panel. Transferring over from Romaniacs for the first of many bunkers, we hope. It's best written CEO and world famous Arlene Foster impersonator Naomi Smith. Hello, Naomi. How are you? Bye, We asked for Naomi, not Arlene. <laughs> how are you? I'm fine. How Jolly are you? good. All right. What did you make of the defenestration of Sajid Javid? Lots of the extended Johnson fan club were keen to portray it as a kind of like a masterstroke. We totally meant to do it all along. That was our plan. Mm. What did you think? Um, I think we've got to remember that for the last few years we've had a minority government that had to listen to Parliament. So it's just been quite a long time since we felt the effects and force of a majority government. And it's doing what majority governments do. Blair did not appoint from across his party, um, particularly not towards the later stages of it. And so, of course... We are now in a situation where Johnson and Cummings will recruit uh, from amongst their number within their party. So I think for those of us that are worried about it, um, we've really got to crack on with the campaign for electoral reform because otherwise this is the normal. This is what happens. While everybody was concentrating on Sajid Javid, Johnson and Cummings installed Suella Braverman as Attorney General. Mm. She's good, isn't she? Our, our good friend, Professor Michael Dugan of Liverpool University, tweeted that she's the worst kind of fourth-rate lawyer, utterly lacking in ability or depth, but just enough technical vocabulary to express their political bigotry in a way that sounds legal. Are you looking forward to what she's bringing down the pike on the sweet trolley of electoral reform and judicial reform, rather? I mean, it, it feels like it's about 1641 uh, that she'd like to take us back to, <laughs> which was when Parliament freed the courts from the sway of the king. Uh, she's condemning judicial reviews, um, and she published a piece a couple of weeks ago um, condemning various human rights laws around employment, social security, non-payment of rent. Um, so I can only imagine that it's those sorts of assaults that we should brace ourselves to expect from her. Grace, that sounds brilliant. Also making his debut on The Bunker today is a guest who appeared on Romaniacs a couple of years ago when the biggest thing we had to worry about was a letter falling off Theresa May's backdrop at the Tory party conference. <laughs> Such innocent times they were. He's been on The Mash Report and Have I Got News For You. He's touring his show Dots right now in a theatre near you and he has a degree in politics, psychology and sociology from Cambridge. So our nightmare world is just a walk in the park. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, how are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm very well. Uh, I, in the absence of Ian Dunn, 
will be using the word motherfucker liberally uh, <laughs> over the course of this uh, podcast. Okay, you've allowed one, but don't you know, don't don't overdunt it. As <laughs> yeah. So you ran the rule this week of incoming Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Apparently, his nickname is the Maharaja of the Yorkshire Dales, and you suspected that the person who gave him that nickname was himself. Yeah, I mean, you would, wouldn't you? Like, if I, if I could get away with being the Maharaja of Bankside, I absolutely would choose that. Uh, but as it stands, I'm just called dickhead by my brother-in-law. His his uh, name is an anagram of high-risk anus. It's all coming out. <laughs> no, uh, Rishi is, Sunak is an, uh, has an enviable uh, life record uh, as the child of immigrant Indian parents. Hmm. Uh, basically, his mum and dad, a GP and a pharmacist, uh, Indian immigrants from East Africa. He got a first from Oxford, an MBA from Stanford, where he was a Fulbright scholar, married the daughter of a billionaire from India, and is now Chancellor of the Exchequer, and took his oath on the Bhagavad Gita. And literally, I am so heavily clinging to the fact that I made my school cricket team, and he did. <laughs> 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 Otherwise, he would have the full... Asian child bingo card. <laughs> Our mum and dad looking at newspapers go, hmm, Chancellor, it's not Prime Minister though, is it? <laughs> is she really? Are you really trying? <laughs> Let's start with a housing crisis and an unexpected way to fix it. According to the National Housing Federation's first ever State of the Nation report, 8 million people are living in houses that are unaffordable, unsuitable or insecure. Chief Executive Kate Henderson says it's the biggest domestic issue we face. We need 340,000 new homes a year, 145,000 thousand of them need to be social housing yet government barely prioritizes any of this and boris johnson has just appointed our 10th housing minister in just 10 years standing in the way of all that is the long-standing nimby principle not in my backyard where older voters don't want to see new developments crowding out their towns reducing the value of their houses and blotting out their lovely view of rolling fields but in contrast there is a small but growing movement saying yes in my backyard originating in san francisco inevitably it's a grassroots campaign for more developments driven by people not investors and john myers from london yimby is here to tell us about it hello john how you doing hi andrew i'm doing well thanks oh i was doing great until i realized i didn't even make my own my school cricket team so <laughs> now i'm curled into a ball yeah, truly but... i am the most powerful asian on this so john t- where did yimby come from explain what you're advocating and what it's all about well yimby's obviously yes in my backyard um and we took inspiration from the successes that you've seen in san francisco and california where the yimby movement there has had incredible victories in getting laws passed to build more affordable housing, to build more housing of every kind. Uh, and so we thought we'd take the best the best of what we saw over there and try to bring it to this country. Because it, w- it was driven in San Francisco by the crowding out of people from basically the tech sector driving property values and, and rents through the roof. Well, it certainly got more expensive partly because of the tech sector. I mean, San Francisco to a rounding error basically hasn't built any houses for the last three or four decades so you know if you if you don't build things then you're expecting to get more expensive and san francisco pretty much rivals london for being one of the most unaffordable places on the planet so i'm not sure if we're number one or number two but we're, we're right we're right up there what sort of people are involved in yimby who are, who are the yimbies it's everything we've got an incredibly wide spectrum um from teenagers to octogenarians from um members of momentum through liberal democrats to libertarians really anyone who believes that we could have and should have a fairer better system of housing that would make existing places better and more welcoming. So can you put, explain a bit more about exactly what that means? What is the, the YIMBY vision of, of good development? Because we tend to, you know, those of us who wouldn't see ourselves as kind of NIMBY types will find themselves, you know, when it's in their postcode, when it's at the end of their road, you start to ask yourself if it's a good idea. What, what makes the YIMBY vision of property development different from 
in comes gigantic developer wanting to build gigantic block of anonymous flats on well, top of your house. <laughs> I'd say that good development is development that meets housing need while improving the place and benefiting the community where it's built. And there are plenty of easy ways to do that and we should be doing vastly more of it. So what does that actually mean in terms of, say, things like sustainability or availability of transport and stuff like that? Because you know, greater density requires greater services. Well, so in terms of sustainability, uh, building more where there is existing transport is actually the greenest thing you can do because we have a huge number of people who are commuting incredibly long distances now because they can't afford a home within easy reach of where their where their work is. And so you have people commuting into London from as far away as York now, which three decades ago would have been completely inconceivable. We're, we're generating these incredibly carbon-heavy ways of living, and if we just added more homes in London and other places with jobs and near to transport, then we wouldn't be doing all of that. I, I feel as though you'll probably know the specific figure, but I remember reading somewhere that even if you built homes within a 20-minute walk from every existing train station in London, that would already be like tens yeah. of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Oh, easily, hundreds of thousands, yeah, if not millions, yeah. And rooftop development is one way that other cities have ended their financial uh, housing crisis they've been able to just put an extra story on a lot of buildings in the center and bingo they've pretty much solved their yeah but then that would mean that i no longer lived on, on the, the top, top floor. of my building <laughs> and, and it is I'm, all about I'm starting you. to see this nimby <laughs> position actually this is a, well, i don't have a yard what am i saying you're, you're only not on my roof not on my <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can you give us examples then of sort of Yimby successes up and down the country or the kind of developments? I mean, I live in North London. I, I live in, um, you know, metropolitan media elite Ponce Stoke Newington. <laughs> and there's a fantastic set of buildings have gone up around uh, the reservoirs near Finsbury Park. It's the Woodbury Down development where there was a scandal mm. where a lot of people were decanted out of their, their decaying and collapsing former social housing. And the thing that replaced it suddenly was not accessible to them. Yeah, I mean, well, well the first thing I say about Woodbury Down in particular is that, you know, our... Our firm belief is that every development, um, especially in those sorts of situations, should be led by the community and the community should be deciding on it. So the whole point of our housing campaign is to stop people being evicted when they want to live in a home. Um, And if if you're going to build some of those houses are probably inevitably going to be expensive. And the way I look at it is if we don't build... If we don't build flats that bankers want to live in, the, the bankers are going to come and price you out of the more affordable home that you wanted to live in instead. So we've got we've got to build a range. We've got to meet housing need at all levels. We've got to meet the social need for social housing, and we've got you know you've got to find you've got to build some expensive housing. Otherwise, you're just going to go and gentrify and displace other people. Naomi, this is your specialist subject, isn't it, from a past life when you were uh, at London First, pre. Brexit being my specialist in the, subject, in the, yeah. when everything was in black and white. Yeah, yes, yeah. So tell us, I mean, what, what do you think of the Yimby idea, and what do you think of our current approach to planning? Um, oh, that, I mean, this is an incredibly big question yes. to ask someone who loves this topic, Andrew. So, <laughs> listen, <laughs> listeners, put the kettle. I'll on, just go for a walk. <laughs> Okay, so Thatcherism has failed. So she uh, pioneered the right to buy your council house so that we she wanted to create a property-owning democracy. And that has completely failed because there are now fewer homeowners than ever before. Um, people are stuck in uh, inadequate homes, renting, um, living with parents far longer than they want to and certainly their parents want them to. Um, and, and so, you know, if ever we needed to know that Thatcherism had failed, this is the... The, the gold standard of, of proving that. Um, I also think that we're in danger of talking about this as a London-only problem. We have yeah. a national housing crisis, and it's yeah. incredibly important to remember that. Um, it's just the, the the crises are different in nature. So in London, 
London and the southeast, of course, we talk about it being a crisis of supply, a lack of supply. Um, but in much of the rest of the country, it's a quality issue and the homes that exist mm-hmm. are not adequate. Um, we know that there are streets and streets of abandoned homes in certain parts of the deindustrialized north, and that is not good either. What we really need to do is to make land much more productive by um by taxing it and and removing any incentive to hold on to that land and not put it into production and build on it. Um, And we talked about other infrastructure and of course people tend to be nimbious because they are concerned about um, the fact that, okay, maybe we need more homes but unless we also get um, more transport or more GP surgeries or more primary schools in the area than they exist. That is true. Um, We have certainly had very poorly managed population growth in the UK compared to other countries and I think that has been an absolute disservice to us and has fueled a lot of the xenophobic bile that that we hear from the right in this country. Um, but what at London First we'd found was where housing was happening with it, new housing was being built within one kilometre of a new piece of transport infrastructure, the rate of housing doubled. The speed with which the the, the development was completed was far 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 higher. Hmm. Um, and so I think it's a travesty that uh, all of the new crossrail stations that are coming on grid very, very, very yeah, slowly. And we can do another podcast talking yeah. about the values of crossrail. But um, you've got places like Ivor, which is in the Greenbelt. Um, they have built a brand new, uh, you know, big station there mm. to accommodate Crossrail, but they haven't put any houses on top of it. They could have. Put That's okay. No, I mean, people will just drive there in a, in a car oh and park exactly back to that point. So um, it, it is about having a holistic view of it. Mm. Um, planning is one part of it, but really, really, it is about unlocking land supply. Now, one one place where the uh, the, the concrete mixer re- meets the road on this is that reading around on Yimby. In many cases, the argument is it, it comes up against we want to build here and we're going to need to knock down your historic sugar mill. We're going to build here. Your lovely goods yard with its Victorian oxygen <laughs> is going to go. We're going to build here. And that lovely field. Historic sugar mill is my pet name for my girlfriend. Historic sugar mill. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you do it in your Barry White voice. So these beautiful, you know, the, the, the things that we kind of tend to regard as you know, quintessentially part of the historic built environment in this very old country of ours are going to go. So what is the, what? obviously every case is an individual case, but one of the kind of core elements of Yimby is we've got to let go of that kind of thing, isn't it? I think there's so much room in so many places where we can build that don't involve knocking down stunning historically listed buildings that actually that's not the real challenge i mean if you just look at london or or many other cities where they have just swathes of 1930s 1920s semi-detached houses or 1950s which you know they they were perfectly fine when they were built for the people who lived in them they may be perfectly happy now but actually in today's price environment we should be building more like the way we would we would have built with that land in the 1920s you would be building mansion blocks we should be building taller terraced houses with flats in them so there's lots of space out there to and we could preserve every single fantastic historic building that we want to that's not a challenge in terms of greenfield though let's remember you asked me about successes earlier we found a bunch of villages that actually want to build housing next to the village and they were previously blocked by the county or by national rules um so the stevens and st albans um in the london greenbelt literally has just allocated um six or seven sites for housing next to the village and the inspector saying you don't have the power to do that and he's actually right they don't have the power to do that but this is crazy because because if the people who actually live there want mm. to build on a piece of greenfield that happens to be greenbelt, why shouldn't they be free to allow that? So that's an easy way forward that doesn't involve some of the sort of contradictions you're talking about. Yeah. Some of our listeners 
Some of them can be of suspicious source. They can be kind of looking for what's going on behind the stories. Many of them will be thinking, well, what's the relationship between Yimby and developers? Are you, are, you, are you helped by them? Are you funded <laughs> by them? I saw you published one of your early papers in conjunction with the Adam Smith Institute. Do you have relationships with developers? And just uh, just for all listeners to be perfectly clear, uh, John is currently wearing a onesie that just says Barrett Holmes exactly. on it again and again. <laughs> and a golden got top me. hat. <laughs> <laughs> so we try to get on with everyone, including the campaigns Protect Rural England and the Civic Movement. Most of our groups haven't taken any funding at all from developers, and certainly Lon- neither London Yimby nor the Yimby Alliance have. We think mm. it's important to be a grassroots movement. Um, of people who care about the housing crisis and building better places, and most importantly, a fairer country. So, if if Yumbi had a you know say uh, you know a, a couple of kind of you know Dominic Cummings is sort of asking for weird ideas, <laughs> semi disruptive weird ideas. Send it via a Gmail address apparently, because <laughs> yeah. that's really secure. What if only the strongest homes were allowed to breed. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're sending, if, if Yumbi is sending something to Dominic Cummings' secret Gmail address that isn't in any way secret, <laughs> what are you saying? What are you sending with the subject line? Hot idea, Dom, smiley face. Well, we don't need to sell it to Mr. Cummings because we've already got the. There was a government independent commission on building better, building beautiful mm. that literally recommended the idea we've been trying to push for the last two years, which is that if you go and ask people in one of these streets of semi-detached houses, would you like the power to pick what new extensions or more more or more ambitious development would look like and actually give yourselves the permission to extend to add more bedrooms to do dormer extensions or even just to knock down and replace the terrace houses or mansion blocks that turns out to be incredibly popular so actually there are community led ways on a very small scale of giving people the power to say yes to more development on their street or on their block um, and that is an easy way for any government to get lots more housing built Mm. Uh, here, I want to ask you because you, I, I detected a potential frustration on your own part here. How close to how close to home? Do you see what I did there? <laughs> is, is, I mean, you, is, you know, is somewhere to live an issue for you? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is uh, something that I was uh, thinking about recently, and on the subject of historical buildings and developing them. So I uh, live opposite uh, this old fire station that's not a fire station anymore Um, and they are developing it in what seems to be a very good and uh, considerate uh, way of uh, preserving the facade and like all of this stuff so good for the area it's being turned into so there's going to be a a new bit of a primary school there as well no one in the area is objecting to it and loads of housing great we need that and I was walking past it uh, on my way to the station a few weeks ago and thinking oh do you know what I love this area I love the fact that maybe this would be a nice place to live one day let's have a quick look and i, I brought up their uh, website and everything and realized that studio flats start from six hundred thousand pounds uh and you're like well that just no <laughs> like fundamentally that when can't will, work like when ha- will a poor hard-working comedian ever be toiling in the in the like, comedy factory and, uh, particularly considering like I look at the fact that, you know, 25 years ago, my family bought our family home, which was a four-bedroom detached house in North London that was purchased on the strength of my mother's wage as a state sector primary teacher. Yeah. And that would never be possible now, a five-minute walk from a tube station, of like all of that sort of thing. And it's just the, the equivalent of my mother and key workers trying to raise families. I'm just an idiot who wanders around on trains and talks to people about weird dumb shit he's thought of. <laughs> 
Right? It's like she is the sort of person that we actually yeah. need Valuable to be living in our, yeah, yeah. Yeah. in our cities. And her equivalent nowadays would just never be able to raise our family in the can way I, that she was able to. Can I slightly disagree with you? I, uh, with the word never, I completely disagree because actually, you know, let's face it, since 1939, we've never grown the housing stock at the net rate we did in the 1820s, right? Or the 1830s, let alone the vastly higher rate of the 1930s. So we know we could build plentiful housing if we put our mind to it. We can easily get... Um, housing as affordable as, as what you're describing, as affordable as it used to be. It's only a question of political will and getting these changes through. There are plenty of cities around the world with hugely growing population, you know, Atlanta, for example, which have the same easy credit, the same low interest rates, but they just built shed loads of housing. And you can look, you can get incredible homes in Atlanta for very little money. So there, it can be fixed. Can I, can I just ask, like, obviously, for, for the equivalent of my mother in 2020 to be able to do what my mother was able to do in 1995. Yeah. Like, you would look at a thing that, you know, in 1995, the value of the house was, you know, four or five times her wage, and uh, now well, she's retired now, but it's now about 20 times uh, the wage that she had when she retired, right? Mm-hmm. So in order to, like... It, it seems to me that you would need to have a massive rush of supply yes. in order to bring costs down to a level where it was still something that five times salary for a key worker would be able to get you on the housing ladder. But then how can we balance that with the fundamental desire of British politics, which is not trapping vast swathes of the middle class in negative equity, which it seems inevitably what would happen if you were to flood the market You've in absolutely that way. hit the nail on the head. I, I know, I wish um, more people... I'm funnier on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is what I'm really interested in. Like, fundamentally, I read books about trains and think about this sort of thing. Right? That's You're absolutely right. It's, it's the hardest question. And so that nobody is suggesting we, we crash house prices overnight. But what we are saying is if you give people who happen to own a ha- home, you know, more power to build more on their streets, build more on their own plots, maybe turn a house into three or four flats, maybe even just knock the buildings down, replace them with mansion blocks, they can make some, they can get some benefit out of that. Um, the individual flats will be much more affordable. And over time, you get a huge boost in supply while making the original homeowners come along with you as well. So we're not going to fix it overnight, but you can fix it over time in a way that existing homeowners can be happy with. Does that make sense? It does. I just query timescales because I think that it's it's a problem that's taken 30 years to create and 30 years seems like it would be quite a long time to try and... And in, the, in those 30 years, the idea that rising house prices, prices are an un- unalloyed good has been hammered home so much by parties and newspapers but that to wean people off that the only, the only problem with it is that it's obviously gone in concert with advances in medical technology which means that my elderly relatives simply refuse to die <laughs> uh, which <laughs> good on them I, d- I don't mean that I love you yeah. <laughs> just to round this one off um, the government's just announced its first homes initiative in the past few weeks yes how is this in any way different from David Cameron's let's give money to the wealthiest young people to take 5% off their mortgage or whatever it was, the right to buy thing last time. (laughs) Well, you've seen a succession of reforms which have been really just sort of redistributing the pie rather than necessarily increasing the amount of supply. Before we go into a discussion of it, could you just tell me what the first terms plan is? Because it seems like it may be relevant to me. (laughs) He's getting his notebook out. (laughs) (laughs) So if if I understand correctly, the requirement will be that developers, when they build a set of homes, will have to make some of those available to people 
probably in the local area. I'm not sure quite how that's mm-hmm. going to be allocated. And they'll be able to buy those homes at a discount and then one each, presumably. And then they'll, um, when they sell again, they'll be required to sell the home at the same percentage discount. Right. Um, to another first time buyer. To another first time buyer, exactly. Okay. Yeah, so which is great for you. It might not be so great for if there was somebody in dire social need who was just about to get you know an affordable house that's for rent. Um, so we're sort of redistributing deck chairs on the Titanic at this point. And the Why easiest can't way I to just have one nice thing <laughs> <laughs> because we could build two. Well, I think I think the, the, the trap that a lot of people fall into is rent controls, um, and they talk up the need for those. And I advocate against them um, because they help people who are already renting, and they don't actually help the people who are trapped at home unable to move out or in inadequate homes and um, and things like that so I, I would say veer away from anyone peddling rent controls as the uh, as the solution to any of this but the good news I hear is when you get four of the houses you can change them into a hotel yeah. <laughs> and it's bigger and it's red and you get to charge rent extra rent. yeah so okay, that's great that does sound good yeah, yeah. old Kent Road <laughs> Let's leave the JCBs and scaffolding vans behind us for an exciting thought experiment. What can four British people tell us about the Democratic primaries in the US? <laughs> After the embarrassing chaos of the Iowa caucuses earlier this month, the party is focusing on Nevada this week and the run-up to Super Tuesday, or Tuesday, on March the 3rd, when 16 states and territories vote for its presidential nominee. Software billionaire Andrew Yang is out of the race. Left candidate Bernie Sanders is a clear front-runner on national average polling, But the same polls give former Vice President Joe Biden a majority of delegates. It's all horribly hard to predict, especially if you're British, but take heart. Even the New York Times described it as harrowing chaos. One major narrative has emerged, though, which is that by selecting Bernie Sanders and embracing identity politics, the Democrats may repeat the same mistakes that Labour did here, of overestimating the country's appetite for socialism and kindly old men. With the caveat that we claim no expertise here and we don't live in America, let's see what we can say about this. <laughs> no, I mean, let's start with Sanders. He's not exactly Corbyn, is he? I mean, by no. our standards, he's a social democrat, but is he too much for the American voter? Um, okay, I'm not going to answer that question so directly, um, but he is currently the front runner. But we've had um, two uh, primaries. We've had New Hampshire and Iowa. Um, and coming out of those, what is looking most likely is that no candidate is going to get a majority of the pledged delegates in this primary season. So you've got this fractured field at the moment with no candidate getting more than about a third of the vote um, in, in either state that's voted yet. I actually was in you know, full declaration of Bernie fan back in... 2016 uh, and I felt he probably would have been better placed than Clinton to beat Trump then I don't know that he is this time uh, which is getting back to your question um, Andrew that uh, is America ready for him I think the, the difference now is that he's four years older and the American economy is doing pretty well Hmm. Very well, in fact. Um, so the whole sort of, you know, anti-billionaires, and I love listening to him say that word, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, shtick doesn't go down quite in the same way as it did uh, when it felt much more relatable four years ago. Ah, uh, here, as a comedian, you must see the potential in Sanders. There's a lot to work with. <laughs> like, crazy old guy, well, cranky. I think... Uh Sort of, I've been keeping a studied distance from being aware of what's going on in the United States, largely because I basically wish that every day the newspaper was split into sections called shit I can and can't do anything about. <laughs> uh, and this is very much very in that thin. I can't do anything about uh, sphere. And suddenly when I see, you know, um, 
Americans who live in the United States are pining on British politics and trying to draw equivalences between mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Sanders and Mr. Corbyn. And I was like, nah, that it's not the same in yeah. any way. And then I don't, I don't want to be the British equivalent of that American who yeah. fundamentally mm. doesn't know anything on the ground. And I was like, I don't know. I, I don't really know what it would add to my life to have really studied takes about the fact that 12 elderly white people got together in a high school gym somewhere called Iowa that I have no interest in ever going to uh, and made a decision, I guess, with an app that sort of worked but then didn't. And I was like, you guys, get on with it. The guy who's currently doing it is evil, so just whoever you pick, just mm. stop the evil guy. I thought it's you were some kind looking, of internationalist. It's not looking here. great. It's not looking great. There's, yeah, um, I mean... Uh, Trump's um, the, the the people that don't like him that number is falling and mm. the people that do like him is going up had the, the insane situation where after after the impeachment thing after the impeachment acquittal his approval ratings rose mm. it's really mm-hmm. depressing John are you on the, on the international Yimby underground your mates in San Francisco <laughs> what kind of feedback are you getting from there because uh, you know housing is an entirely different issue there. yeah I mean housing is not really um, certainly in terms of planning isn't really addressed on the federal level in the United States. So that, that's I mean, but the, the amazing thing is in the US, it's it's sort of a, a cross partisan issue. So you had everyone from Obama through to current President Trump through to almost all of the candidates, as far as I'm aware, saying we need to build lots more housing. So I'm just going to sit here being happy about that outcome, quite frankly. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, yeah, we found somebody who's getting what he wants <laughs> at long last. Um, Joe Biden mm. seems to represent the the, uh, the polar opposite, the anti uh, the anti Bernie on the democratic establishment. Democratic establishment, safe hands, but he's hanging by a string. He's coming fourth in Iowa, fifth mm. in New Hampshire, and seems to be intent on blowing it by kind of insulting his audiences. The Diamond Joe routine is not really working very <laughs> yeah. well, man, is it? Yeah, no. I mean, he's he's obviously pretty retrograde within uh, the primary voter demographic. And his appeal was meant to be that he was going to be uh, that he wasn't too future grade for general yeah. America, um, especially in key Midwest seats like Michigan, uh, places like that. But his style just isn't resonating. And instead of coming across as some kind of like favorite uncle figure, he's really doing like angry grandpa, <laughs> and it's not working for him. Abe Simpson, twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Bloomberg uh, is now going to compete in Nevada. His figures are now, yeah. are now good enough. And Bernie Sanders has been saying, and I'm not going to do the voice, the American people are sick and tired of billionaires buying elections. Do the voice. Do I, the voice. I can't. I it's can't easier. Do it. Billionaires. Billionaires. That's the, it. The American people. Can't do it. But the, I mean, the counter idea, the, the idea, the pro Bloomberg idea is the one thing that stops a bad guy with a billion dollars is a good guy with a billion dollars. <laughs> I mean, Bloomberg is gold dust for the Sanders campaign because he is. He's there as this, yeah. this figure of everything that, that the Sanders lot are trying to uh, portray as being the enemy. Um, and, and look, Bloomberg's made it his life's work to take on the NRA. Good. Mm-hmm. Good. I think we'll all agree. You know, yeah. that's, that's a good thing to do. Oh, this is um, when I come out as really pro-gun. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that, is, that is good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in his final year as New York mayor, um, he compared two of the really key unions on whom he now will rely. Um, he compared them to the NRA uh, and he's criticised <laughs> Obamacare and things like this. So, uh, yes, he has got incredibly deep pockets. Yes, he is throwing that at those big states and is now uh, competing in Nevada. Um, but he has got a lot of hostages. To, he's created a lot of hostages to fortune for himself. 
Listeners, uh, we guarantee we'll have some actual experts on this subject pretty soon. Um, uh, we didn't do badly. We didn't do badly, Andrew. but we didn't do badly. But we, got, we people really know the granular stuff down to, to down to data level. But from our point of view, from this table here, do any of us have an inkling of which of these we think might be able to beat Trump in November? Well, I mean, last time I looked at the betting markets on this, um, Sanders is more likely to win the nomination. Mm -hmm. But if he were to get selected, Bloomberg would be more likely to to win, according to the betting markets. Now, that may be wrong, but there's money to be made if you disagree. Interesting. Were they British betting markets? Because I know there's pretty strong restrictions on the US betting markets around this stuff. Yeah, I think it it wasn't a US site, but it was on the US. What I've seen is that um, at least a week ago, um, all the uh, Dem candidates stood a chance of beating Trump. Um, I think that's changed in the last week um, and Trump is is looking much stronger. Um, but of them, yeah, I, do, I, I, I would imagine uh, that, that Bernie might struggle. Um, but who knows? I think it's all changing quite quickly. Well, we're just yeah. here to cheer everybody up. Yeah, <laughs> and also isn't like the Bloomberg thing is perhaps not particularly surprising because isn't the, the main tactic there is... I will run against an insane Republican as a normal Republican, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one way of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, from one subject that baffles the hell out of us to another, TikTok. Ooh. The reason everybody you know between 8 and 15 can't tear themselves away from their phone, where they mime, make and share <laughs> short pop videos, and use up all the broadband <laughs> and the Wi-Fi. It used to be known as Musical.ly, but since it was acquired by the Chinese corporation ByteDance, it has exploded, rising to over 500 million users worldwide. It's one of the few truly international apps of its 1.5 billion downloads, 460 million are in India, and 174 in its home country of China. It's now a challenge to similar but different networks like Instagram and Snapchat. None of this explains why it's so addictive to teenagers. Why is it so huge? I hear, are you familiar with TikTok? I'm not, but how many, how many people did you say have it in India? 460. Uh, Million downloads. 460 million downloads. So all of my cousins will be on this. Yes. How many cousins have you got? 460 million. <laughs> yeah. Lads, get on the network. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, that's downloads, but I mean, if, if everybody downloaded it twice, it's still 230 yeah. million people. I don't know. I've not used this myself. Mm. Uh, this, it's, I, I gather it's how children make songs. Well, it's, well it's short clips, pre existing yeah. music, and y- you know, y- you might. There's lots of challenges. Yes. And you can put sort of bunny ears on yourself and play with bunny ears. You don't have to mime. So, musically, was that that mm. you, it would be you miming along to a song so you could pretend you were singing like Adele or whatever. Um, and TikTok now, you can. just upload any normal video and it's cropped to 15 seconds you can record within the app and add in things um or you can do the the miming thing but yeah you you tend to lay over um somebody else's music and a lot of it is based around challenges so it might be a silly dance challenge or a practical joke challenge or something like that so it's really popular um with people in school doing naughty things at school which is incredibly appealing yeah and it's never happened before. Never been allowed before. <laughs> this is also, it's the sort of thing where I feel as though I'm about to say, well, this all just sounds like nice fun for the children. Let them have their nice fun. <laughs> and then one of you is going to be like, TikTok is made of arsenic, actually. <laughs> and nothing nice can ever exist because that's the world that we live in. And they just poached Nick Clegg to be their CEO. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, you're right. Yet. We are, you know, old people. We are sp- supposed to kind of react with weary disgust and kind of dislike. But, you know, the... You know, I dipped into it feeling very weird to be amongst all this, shall we say, teenage content. Mm. Lots of, uh, you know, hearts and bunny ears and, you know, bunny noses and all this kind of thing. I was actually weirdly impressed at the kind of creativity on on, on show that, you know, where kids have taken 
the kind of the the limitations of this and the framework of it and i've decided to get really inventive so there's some really genuinely good dancing genuinely kind of inventive like made up in the school playground choreography skate tricks parker all kinds of stuff i actually got quite a good feeling oh yeah there are good things happening in the world there's there's gonna be a downside eventually and i'm just waiting for one of you to split look this is a sort of wet liberal podcast (laughs) at at some stage one of you is going to reveal that there's an underlying horror well probably well when you've got you know 500 million people around the world doing it there will be an underlying horror (laughs) there is okay so so in china it operates as a different brand it's called Yin, um and uh they are censoring political content very heavily, of course. <laughs> so oh. the pro-Hong Kong protests, even pro-LGBT content is highly censored. Um, uh, That's not TikTok's fault. That's China's fault, surely. Well, it, like like increasingly modern Britain, um, mm. uh, it is now obviously owned by China. So for a long time, it wasn't um, revenue generating at all. Um, it was not... They, did, they didn't have a... Uh, business model for income they've now started to do ads and in video advertising um, and they are screening and banning political ads across the world but if i went up and did one of my amazing freestyle dances about uh, free hong kong exactly would that be censored by well, tiktok so some of it has been yes but not before 300,000 people plus have watched it so um, you were talking about the creativity mm. of uh, young people using this and some of them have been fantastic in in pretending that they're doing a makeup tutorial but actually talking about horrendous genocide uh, that's taking place somewhere in the world so um, it, it is being used but of course it is also being heavily monitored and then there may well be repercussions for having produced that, that kind of content they're just like doing winged eyeliner yep, and tapping the exactly. locations of <laughs> mass graves in Morse code no, on no, the table it, 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 no, it's, no, it's, it's, so she she was there exa- doing exactly that, doing her winged eyeliner um, and talking about, and I can't remember which particular conflict it was, but just saying, yeah, and as I'm putting this on, I just want to talk to you about something really important today. That's great. Uh, that today, over a thousand people have been murdered by their government in wherever, you know, and mm. it, it was really, really good, strong stuff. Um, I'm interested in it because I'm a campaigner and as a good campaigner, you need to go to where people are rather than trying to get people to come to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look forward to the bunkers debut on tiktok <laughs> yeah we'll give it a go somehow <laughs> but then on, on the political advertising front isn't there the, the problem like we probably wouldn't like it if you know trump was advertising on this sort of thing or you know if during brexit they could have interrupted your tiktok dance video by saying x million people from turkey are going to come and move into the we, roof extension we that loved, is now being we loved it when get brexit done was being advertised on romaniacs though because we got all the cash for it we got all the, <laughs> the cash for it there but yeah and, and and as you might remember we stopped brexit it just <laughs> didn't happen as a result of that but so like you, you don't want you don't want who from yeah. your subjective position of the baddies to be able to advertise politically on this thing, but then you've got we, to... We need got to do much it. better regulation of political advertising on social media, yes. Look at the tone of it. I mean, it is massively sort of emotionally intense, the way things with teenagers are, like exaggerated expressions. Everything is... And the fact that they have to take place in 15 and 30 second bits accentuates that massively. It is kind of probably a bit rich for the blood of anybody older than about 30. I, I, I find it sort of slightly overwhelming. But, you know, it does have... You know, there is there, there is some of that kind of excitement of youth in it. Here is a thing old people don't understand. Like, seven-inch singles were in the 50s, you know, what's mm-hmm. the point of that? And then something amazing emerges from it. I do find that sort of quite 
inspiring. And of course, our old friend Anand Menon yes, did a TikTok did. explaining Britain's trade issues with the yeah. EU, yeah. where he sort of stood there doing shapes like uh, David Byrne in the Once in a Lifetime it, video. It, it's, it's just following the pattern of every other social media platform. The very young people use it, then the teenagers use it, then the 20-somethings use it, and then people like your dad use it, and everyone has to shit on them. And I think Anon may have been the kiss of death for most young people on TikTok. Right. Sorry, Anon. Vikram, download TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> These kids will have to move on to the next one. My friend, a very, very good stand-up comedian, Sean McLaughlin, um, did a oh, show yeah. called Hail Mary, which is one of the finest yeah. stand-up shows I've ever seen. Uh, but he had a section talking about uh, his little cousin uh getting into watching youtube videos of people playing video games oh yeah uh, and sean what said, is that about it's huge. <laughs> said, like i understand it but i also understand that it's the last thing i will ever <laughs> understand <laughs> the end of the bunker which means the weekly stampede for the emergency exits what are the panel using as their escape routes from the labyrinth of politics this week which tv music books events or miscellaneous provide that moment of respite Ah, here's Shah. What's your personal escape route at the moment? Uh, so, as I uh, told you the other day, I am currently re-watching the entirety of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Wow. And I'm having a great old time. And you know that when I'm doing something like that, I've got a lot of work on that I am uh, very hardly uh, ignoring. But yesterday, got home from a gig... Next episode was up. It was Once More with Feeling, the wonderful musical episode. Amazing. So even That's I know about this, and I've never seen Buffy. Even I know this is a is a is a touchstone of Western civilization. Yeah. I sat at my kitchen table. I ate two packets of Monster Munch. I watched Once More with Feeling. It was absolutely excellent. Are you seeing new things in Buffy that you didn't see previously? Uh I am, yes. Uh because like basically I watched it originally at uh, that age where loads of things went over my head and now I feel as though I'm being beaten over the head by them. Uh, <laughs> because, like, So I was at first too young to watch it and now probably too old to watch it and really missed that sweet spot <laughs> where when I was in like sort of mid to late teens, I would have really been like, ah, see what you've done there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, I, think, I think it stands up. I think it's an excellent show. It's definitely a good escape route from what's happening now mm. by a mile. Special guest John Myers, what, what, what do you uh, retreat to to stop thinking well, about the house apocalypse that's uh, impending? <laughs> At the moment, I'm uh, reading Alberto Angela's A Day in the Life of Ancient Rome, which is an incredible book, which sort of takes you on a tour around the entirety of ancient Rome, or a large part of it, over the course of a single day. And so you get to see every feature of life, from the small shopkeepers to you know to masters in, in, in a villa. And so you see the full gamut of human life, the grisliness and, and, and the reality, and, and also the fact that they're facing many of the same challenges yeah. that we had, you know, in relation to slum dwellings and what have you. But uh, And also, of course, talking about problems with the ancient Britons. So it's good to see something's ever changed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't that, uh, feel like escapism. Uh, well, the <laughs> weird thing <laughs> is, I didn't know. I only discovered this because uh, I, I myself retreated into ancient Rome to try and escape Brexit. I didn't realise that Romans basically invented the tower block. Yes. They invented the kind well, of uh, housing mansion block. Mansion block, yeah. And they invented the best concrete ever. Nobody yes. has ever improved on their concrete. <laughs> wow. so, so basically, you're not escaping at all, are you? You're just seeing the same old stuff through a different prism. Uh, what can I say? I'm unobsessive. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi Smith, how about you? What's your happy place at the moment? Um, well, other than Alexandre's Instagram where he's just baked something. I don't know if you've seen his bread. Our, oh, our remaining ex-colleague uh, Alex is in Mykonos for a while, isn't he? And, and, and I am a foodie that loves to cook as well. Um, and as everybody who listens to Romaniacs probably knows, I am... Um, 
uh, a staunch vegan, I think, is probably, yeah, um, not, not, not uh, uh, a shy and retiring type, as few vegans are. Um, anyway, I recently bought an Instant Pot, which is like a clever pressure cooker. Um, and they are so good. And I am literally obsessed with watching YouTube videos about how I can make a dal in like seven minutes with one pot to You can make that in seven uh, minutes yes, using a... I hear, this I means war. <laughs> what the hell's going on? <laughs> come round. This is unbelievable. It, it, it's, I mean, because all this slow cooker movement bollocks. You know, you can set the slow cooker <laughs> yeah. off in the morning, come home and there's a lovely chilli... No, I want it in my belly now. Yeah. yeah. So surely pressure cooking is the way for I want it quickly. I don't want it slowly. Are you telling me you're escaping from the pressure cooker of politics using a pressure cooker? <laughs> Literally. <laughs> also, it's wonderful. Me, very, very important question. So when I, my, my mother used to use a pressure cooker quite yeah. a lot when I was a child, but I always feared the whistle. Mm. Uh, and I would leave the room when the whistle ca- was quite coming right. on. Does the instant pot have a whistle? It doesn't. It, okay, it, good. it, it either uh, depressurizes itself or you can do a manual depressuring but you have to stand back from the steam because that would take the skin off your face <laughs> <laughs> this is the quality but worth it for a seven minute doll getting one getting one this is the quality politics content people come here for uh, my escape routes is I've been listening to all of Andrew Weatherall the great Andrew oh, Weatherall who, who passed peace. away very unexpectedly this week only 56 he was uh, and it's a shocker because he was uh, you know one of the one of the geniuses if not the genius of, of Acid House and pre- prolific beyond words and yours knew a Weatherall track and it always took you somewhere else, so I've been hammering it. R.I.P. Andrew Weatherall. Yeah. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to our panel. I hear Shah on tour now with Dots. Yes. Where, where's Where's next? Where are the next uh, locations? This weekend is uh, Leicester and Poole, uh, and then travelling all around the country. Uh, if you live in London, then on the 31st of March, I'm doing it twice at the Southbank Centre to be recorded for HBO. I have to sell lots of tickets for that. <laughs> Please come because I'm pranging out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be there, we'll be there. Yeah. Double dots. And Naomi Smith, you're on Remain XGT tomorrow as well. Double GC. Yeah, I think, does that make me like a poddict? Yeah, it's all, I don't know. Podcast it's some, addict. Who knows? Pod dependent. And <laughs> thank you to special guest John Myers. Where can people find out more about Yimby? Yimbyalliance.org and LondonYimby.org. And have you got any sort of Yimby-ish events coming up in the near future? Yimby happenings? Uh, watch this space. We'll be announcing on the website soon. Jolly good. Okay. We'll be back next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod if you've got this far. And we're on Facebook too. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Naomi Smith and Ahir Shah. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.